It's the last hurrah. Farewell 2017. It's a new day on the horizon. At least that's what Oprah said. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, we're going to wrap up 2017 with a big motherfucking bow on it and uh, move into the broad new world, brave new world, whatever. It's broad and a brave new world of 2018. This episode, we're going to be wrapping up my rundown of my favorite films of 2017. Um, You can check the archives for part one in which I uh, talked about my honorable mentions. So this one's basically going over my current top 10 of 2017. Granted, as I mentioned on the last episode, there are a lot of films I haven't seen. The Shape of Water, The Post, I, Tanya, Brigsby Bear, Good Time. There's a bunch, including awards and contenders, that either came out very late in the year and I just haven't gotten around to, or they're the small uh, little hidden gems of movies like uh, Wind River, which I still have to check up on, and uh, and a bunch of other ones. So I actually list a bunch of the ones that I I missed uh, on the part uh, the first part of this 2017 wrap-up. So you can listen there for more of the ones that I, I still need to see. Um, also, if you're listening to this episode and you hear me not mention a film that you have heard on previous episodes of the podcast that, how, that I did enjoy, or you're wondering if your favorite one, why isn't your favorite one in the top 10, uh, either I saw it and I didn't care for it, or it's in part one and I mentioned it as one of my uh, honorable mentions. So, of course, going into any top 10 of anything... You got to remember this is completely subjective and just based pretty much on what resonated with me the most um, of the ones that I have seen. I haven't seen as much as I'd like. So stay tuned to crookedtable.com for some of the reviews of the ones that I didn't see, like Shape of Water, which will be coming up a review on the, on the, the website within the next few days. Um, as for my personal top 10 of 2017, however, here's the list presented in alphabetical order. Baby Driver. Hardcore Crooked Table fans know that I'm a big fan of Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and I'm equally enthusiastic about his uh, Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy, that being Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. The last of which is my least favorite, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so between Hot Fuzz and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, I think Edgar Wright has two like near masterpieces. Like These are 4.5 to 5 out of 5 star movies in my book. Add Baby Driver to the list. I was excited about this coming out just because I knew, you know, I was obviously familiar with Edgar Wright's filmography. I had heard about it, um, you know, in writing for Screen Rant and such, um, that it was sort of a musical, but not really. That was that the music really set the tone for the action, um, and it was sort of choreographed to the songs that were playing in the uh, headset of the main character. And um, I was really taken for a ride with this film, I guess, sort of uh, pun intended. Ansel Elgort stars as the... Um, getaway driver for a, a group of criminals and falls in love around the same time that he's trying to get out of that life. And I was really blown away, not only by the soundtrack and the action and the performances in this film, um, but also the, the amount of heart it had. I thought that the, the, the love story between Baby and um, Deborah was very, was very uh, heartwarming and it made you really emotionally ground the character, as well as his relationship with his foster dad. There was a lot of great stuff in here. Uh, it's really more of a, a visceral thrill ride than it is a, a piece of art, technically, and so on that level I understand why some uh, more pretentious film critics and such may not have been all about it, or why it's not getting serious awards love, because it isn't. 
a historical epic or anything like that. And I think that because of that, movies that are more about, um, I guess, more outwardly wearing their fun on their sleeve have a tendency to be sort of dismissed as such. But uh, I think that's a big mistake, especially in relation to Baby Driver this year. One of the best soundtracks and actually one of the best editing uh, jobs in, in films this year, just because of the way that the film is cut together and it moves at such a breakneck pace. The Big Sick. In any given year, there's really only a couple comedies that I really enjoy. I don't know if it's just... I think I, I guess I just find so many comedy films to be either too gross or too dumbed down for the masses or just plain asinine and irritating or whatever. I just It's really hard for a comedy to really resonate with me these days. And that's kind of been the case, I guess, for the last few years at least. Um, the Big Sick is probably by far the best comedy of the year. And um, not only is it is it hilarious, but it's it's again going back to Baby Drive. You can see we can tell what resonates with me and things that hit me emotionally. And the Big Sick uh, subverts the romantic comedy formula, focusing on um, not only the relationship itself, but sort of the the journey that the male male part of the couple. This in this version played by Kumail Nanjiani, who co-wrote this film with his wife Emily V. Gordon. Uh, the film is directed by Michael Showalter, since we're naming credits out, out of, getting credits out of the way. And it focuses as much on his relationship with his girlfriend's parents as it does with his relationship with her. And it's really about how about him and how he overcomes um, his place in his family and sort of the culture clash that arises from that. And when it did, and it handled that kind of thing in a much uh, a much more um, deeper way than something like my big fat Greek wedding or something like that, where it's just basically played for laughs. The Big Sick was by far one of the one of the best films I've seen this year, as far as as I said, comedies, but just as far as relationship movies. Um, I think it looks like it's really getting overlooked for awards. I, I, if it was up to me, this would be up for best screenplay, possibly even squeaking into the best picture category as well as, you know, some acting awards. I think Holly Hunter is probably has the best shot at getting a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. But um, to me, it's really Kumail Nanjiani, who I wasn't really that familiar with before this. I think he's on Silicon Valley, which is a show I've heard good things about but don't watch. Uh, I thought he was great in this film in his first big screen role, and I'm sure that it's going to open many doors for him, as well it should, because The Big Sick is an amazing movie. And him and he and his wife, Emily V. Gordon, like I said, who co-wrote the film... They deserve mad props because The Big Sick is the kind of movie you don't really see very very much nowadays. Blade Runner 2049. I was really, uh, really hesitant about a sequel to Blade Runner because it's one of those films that I find interesting. I've written, I mean, I did part of my college thesis on Blade Runner and I, I find it really dense and, and worth studying and worth breaking down and sort of analyzing. But it's not really a film that I necessarily find particularly entertaining. And that's how I always explain that movie to my wife who hasn't seen it. Um, <clears throat> it's more interesting in what it has to say. And like it's more that you want to watch it and then read a book about what the film's trying to com- uh, convey than actually while you're watching. Like, this is a great time. It's not really that kind of a movie. So going into Blade Runner 2049, I was really nervous about them... Uh, basically the whole film falling flat that the what it's trying to say isn't particularly interesting or well executed and then you just end up kind of with a really boring sort of staid film and it sounds like some people saw that with Blade Runner 2049 I didn't get that impression at all and I was totally swept up in the what two hour and 45 minute runtime or whatever it is I think the first sign that the film was going to work out was when they brought Harrison Ford back to reprise his role as Deckard 
which by the way they they handle in this film by not even by sort of sidestepping the mystery surrounding whether or not he's a replicant at the end of Blade Runner um this film sort of addresses it but also doesn't sort of sort of doesn't address it at all and in that way it retains a lot of the mystery of Ridley Scott's 1982 classic but also when they brought in Denis Villeneuve who I really liked Prisoners and Enemy and Sicario and Arrival like I'm really a big fan of his English language films I haven't gone back and watched his first few um before he broke out over here with Prisoners but I think that uh he's really one of those visionary direct directors that works really well with um, sci-fi visuals and uh, crafts at least in Blade Runner 2049 an incredible movie that while it's been getting some heat from some critics I know for uh, being misogynistic and that kind of thing and like the role that the women play in and I can understand that I think that the world of the film isn't supposed to be it's supposed to be dystopian and I think that that is uh, you know the lack of strong female presence the fact that all the women in the movie are sort of subservient to men and there's sort of that kind of undercurrent going on. I think that's actually, if anything, feeding into how how hopeless the world is without without uh, women in a strong role. And I think that sort of speaks to the current um, milieu, as it were. Um, but, you know, you add in the, the interesting story that it has going on, a really understated work from Ryan Gosling, uh, and most of all, the cinematography by Roger Deakins, who still hasn't won an Oscar for some reason. And if he doesn't get it for this film, then the the, uh, the Academy Awards we should just and they should just end because at this point, this was by far the best looking movie. You pick any screenshot in it, and you can like you want to throw it on your desktop or your computer or put it in a frame on your wall. It's that good. And luckily for me, the storytelling resonated um, on the same level that I found Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Not only not not only not a missed opportunity, but actually a film that's on par, if not better than the original. Coco. So I, a couple years ago, I did put Inside Out in my top 10 of uh, 2015. And really, this is the best film that Pixar has put out since then. Uh, I'd venture to say that Coco might, it's either slightly better or slightly worse than Inside Out, but it's on the same level with that film. Both of those are, you know, uh, some of the best that Pixar has done since Toy Story 3, which was seven years ago now. And Coco just nails the Mexican culture in such a beautiful way, um, telling a story about a young boy who sort of runs away from his family and winds up in the land of the dead and while trying to pursue a career as a musician, which his family has forbidden him from doing so, and discovers so much about uh, his family history and where he comes from and the importance of following your dream, but also tempering that with uh, making time for the people, the people you love and the people who love you and uh, cherishing the memory of those who've passed on. There's so much great stuff in here. There's so many uh, strong themes in this movie. And it's like Inside Out, it sort of feels like Pixar is making these films more for adults than for uh, than for their kids, which I think is, is an approach that's really worked for them amazingly well since Toy Story in 95, is that they they make stories that are universal, that parents can relate to, and that are visually entertaining and, and have other aspects that appeal to kids. But, um, you know, they're really the, the sophistication of their storytelling and the subtext and the actual text, I guess, of what's going on behind it that really elevates it from a lot of the other sort of animated direct that we get these days. And looking at you, Despicable Me 3, um, and let alone Emoji Movie and things that are really terrible. Coco is by far the best animated film I've seen this year. Um, by far has probably the best film, best original song I've seen in a film this year with Remember Me. 
And not only that, it's probably the only film this year in which I got my ugly cry on. Uh, other movies on this list and you know that I've enjoyed elsewhere really uh, hit me emotionally. And now that I've since I have since I've had a kid, I've been real emotional softy even more so than I used to be. And um, Coco is is the one that like all I have to hear is part of one of the of Remember Me or like part of the song or think about it, and it, it hits me emotionally. It's it's it cuts that deep as far as themes that resonate with me, and so I had to find a place for it on this list. The Florida Project. Of course, you know, I'm recording this from Florida. I live in Florida with my wife and child. So naturally, a film set in Florida that deals with the Orlando area that my wife is is intimately familiar with and that I've been with, you know, been through many times. Um, it's no surprise that this film sort of, I had already had an in with this one. I'd heard a lot of good stuff about this coming out of the festival circuit about how Sean Baker, who uh, who did Tangerine a couple years ago, brought Willem Dafoe as the only star in this film of essentially unknowns, focusing on a group of children living in a motel outside of the Disney World area in Orlando, and um, sort of their, I guess, low-income life and them surviving and struggling to, um, you know, with all the, all the things happening around them, and sort of this, uh, I guess... Shadow, living in the shadow of Disney World and uh, the happiest place on earth. Sort of using that as a backdrop for this much more realistic uh, story of these people kind of struggling in poverty and that kind of thing. And the film is, this is funny how earlier in on this podcast I mentioned about how uh, Blade Runner is not a film that's necessarily entertaining to watch. Well, I felt very much that way watching The Florida Project. It's very frustrating in a lot of ways watching this film. Um, because the the parents in the movie, you know, the one particular one, uh, the, the central mother character, makes such bad decisions and uh, just acts like so immature and uh, irresponsibly throughout that it, it, as someone who's a parent myself, it kind of frustrated me and pissed me off a lot of the time. But that's the point of this. this she's trying to make the best decisions she can with the circumstances that she's in. She's, she loves, she does love her daughter that much as a parent. And, um, she, you know, she's just trying to get by and it's life is a struggle for so many people out there. Um, you know, there, there's this, this saying that I, you know, you hear a lot about, Oh, don't, you don't complain because you know, no matter how hard it is for you, there's always someone out there that has it worse. And this movie really puts that, that uh, adage into effect I think that the fact that this, the story is told mostly through the eyes of the children was a stroke of brilliance. And I know the last um, few seconds of the film was sort of divisive, but it really worked for me and delivered some of the best acting that I've seen from children in a long time. Get Out. This was another movie that I'd heard a lot of good things going into it. Uh, and of course, I saw the trailer and I was like, that looks awesome. And I'd heard about it being sort of a horror satire, you know, the satirical elements going on from Jordan Peele of Key and Peele fame. And so I didn't quite know what to make of this. I mean, a lot of first time directors come out with something and it's fine or it shows promise or whatever. But this film really, the, the, the attention to detail, the craft, the, um, the way that Jordan Peele tells the story is really, it really floored me. And um, not only does it speak to racial tension in America, which is particularly, sadly, as relevant now as ever before, <clears throat> but it, it does so in such a uh, visually interesting, um, insightful, um, arresting way that uh, also works not only on an art, on an artistic level, 
but as pure entertainment. This works as just if you just want to look, if you just want to see this movie and just watch a fun horror film, this this is this has that for you. There's plenty of stuff in here. I mean, you have Lil Rel Howery, uh, Howery as uh, sort of the comic relief in this film. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya and his girlfriend Allison Williams. You know, sort of this interracial couple going back to her uh, her hometown and sort of the chaos that ensues that something's not right here. So it sort of you can walk into it with almost like a Stepford Wives type of 70s paranoia thriller throwback vibe to it. And I think if you're all you're looking for is that you got that. If you're looking for a horror film that has more social commentary, that has more to say than just, you know, jump scares and uh, robbing you of a couple nights sleep. This definitely has that. And that to me is what takes Get Out to the next level. Um, I know that it's 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 in contention for a lot of the big awards as we move into uh, Oscars here. And I'm really hoping that it gets Best Director and Best Picture nominations because um, I think it's it's a it's a film that has that that has themes that really speak to everything we hear in the news nowadays. And not only that, but it's from it it, it has features some unbelievable performances. Unbelievable performances, the, the unforgettable uh, direction, and it's just—it's a movie that really I'm looking forward to revisiting a second time. I only saw it in theaters the once, and I picked it up on Black Friday and Blu-ray, but I'm waiting to watch it with Kai uh, again. But it's—it's it's one of those movies that I can only see myself loving more the more times I watch it. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. If you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you've probably heard the uh, sort of epic. I, and I, I don't know if epic is a little too strong a word, but the sort of epic clash, I'll say epic anyway, of, uh, of opinions on Guardians of the Galaxy, the first film back in 2014. Freddie and I reviewed it on this podcast. I forget exactly what episode it is. You can, it's called The Phantom Menace. It's one of the first ones. I think it's like episode two or... No, it's episode one. Episode one, The Phantom Menace. That's why. That's the whole pun. I forgot that. Um, and I liked it fine. I thought it was decent. Uh, I liked the characters, but everything else, the plot and all that, uh, the villain was all pretty ho hum to me and kind of standard mar- standard issue Marvel, so I still gave it three point five and I thought it was uh, it was serviceable. It had some fun laughs in the moment, but people were coming out of this thing like, "Holy shit, my life is is changed forever. This is this generation Star Wars, that kind of thing." And I was little, and I I just didn't see it. I think that the hype surrounding it probably made me feel a little more critical of it at the time. And upon subsequent viewings, I pretty much stick uh stick pretty closely to that 3.5 i think it's a good film i think it's on the actually the lower scale of marvel cinematic universe efforts so when guardians of the galaxy 2 was coming out i was excited to see it i was like oh so of course i'll see that blah 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 but i did not expect to love the film as much as i did everything in this movie and i don't know if it's because other superhero movies this is the case with x-men the original x-men 2000 this is the case with sam raimi spider-man those films lay the groundwork for you. Here's the cast, here's the world, here's what the characters' journeys are and what's going on with them, and then the sequel just hit, hits the ground running. And so everything has uh, has a lot a lot more of emotional resonance. I keep using those words because they, they it connects with me. Um, you can just dig a lot deeper into who these people are, why they are that way, and, and you know what their perspectives are. So going into Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2... I think James Gunn's done an incredible job creating this franchise, but in the second one, he really took everything up a notch. It's it's got more jokes. The characters feel more more real. They're more relatable. Their arcs move forward significantly. Um, there's a villain in here that's actually a ton of fun to see on the big screen. Um, it's got more. Um, 
more beautiful just shots like the cinematography and the and the compositions that uh that James Gunn puts together for this film is all really strong and really impressive and it's just it's just a better movie in every way the soundtrack while maybe not filled with as many songs that I recognize as the first one the soundtrack connects to the film the the images on screen in a in a much more um I don't know tangible visceral way for me uh and it just it really I was really surprised by how much I like this. This is one of the only films I've seen in theaters twice this year, mostly because I wanted to take Kai to see it, and just because she's heard such good things about it too. She's like, "Really? Is it? How could it be that great?" Because she agrees with me on the first movie, uh, in that it's it's fine but not amazing. But this one really impressed me, and it, and it had me so invested in these characters that I can't believe how excited I am to see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Of course, I got emotional a few times, especially towards the end. No spoilers here, as you all know. The big the big. Uh, climactic uh death scene which i won't get into but all of that um it's just a great movie and it's it's one that uh really impressed me and, and showed just how willing marvel is to kind of go out there with it this had very very few connections to the uh, marvel cinematic universe minus a couple mentions of thanos here and there so really excited to tell you that i, I loved guardians of the galaxy volume 2 way more than the original it I was a fan of Stephen King's It, the 1990 miniseries with Tim Curry as Pennywise, but I wasn't, like, it was mostly because I thought his character and his performance in that, in that show, miniseries, whatever it is, TV movie, I guess, essentially, um, but it was mostly because his performance was so committed, and Tim Curry kind of goes for it in everything, whether it's, you know, uh, Frankenfurter or, uh, you know, the concierge in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. He really commits and goes for it in every performance, and he 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 did that with his performances Pennywise. So when I heard about it, I went back and I rewatched the Stephen King's It miniseries, and wow, that thing's not that great, except for Tim Curry's performance. But Andy uh, Muschietti, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, he did such a great job with this movie that it, it felt like the original, but everything felt like it felt the, like the story was being told as it was intended all along that it just had never been brought to life and never had been fully realized. And yeah, there's a, did he use, is there too much CG with Pennywise and some of the things that he does? Yeah, slightly, a little bit here and there. I think it pushes that a little too far here and there. But I think but Bill Skarsgård really commits to his, his performance here and uh, he makes Pennywise like legitimately terrifying. Now, it's sort of darkly funny in moments, but he doesn't... He, he t ties more into what I would think a modern-day uh, take on Pennywise would be. And in, not only does his style sort of harken back to the, uh, you know, the, the character's sort of historical roots, but um, he, he finds that balance where he's scary without, without losing that, that entertainment value that when, like, when you see him pop up randomly where you're you know you, I don't know they use him just right in this movie and they use him just enough not only that the child actors in this film uh yeah of course Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things is in there but like the other characters the other actors who I was never from was not familiar with going into this they all really blew me away especially the the, uh, the girl that plays Beverly I thought she stole every scene she was in and um you know the film really does feel like a stand by me meets Nightmare on Elm Street hybrid like the book is supposed to be, but I, I feel like um, this film 
just takes you, it's, it's such a combination of, of uh, hilarity with some of the things that the kids say and the way that they relate to each other and horror with Pennywise and some of the, uh, the ways that they, they interact with him. Um, just, I was just really impressed with the way that they distilled Pennywise down and tied him into everybody's like personal demons and that Pennywise basically uh, is essentially a metaphor for each of their personal demons and how they all have this shared loss or pain and they they bond over that and then Pennywise is just you know the supernatural metaphor of that and I think this film captured that in a uh, in a way that really surprised me so I'm very excited to see what happens in chapter two and I hope that they can keep the same level of quality going. If the 90 miniseries is any indication, the adult part of, part of the storyline is where it really is where it really runs into some trouble. So I'm hoping that they are able to overcome that because this was a hell of a first half. Logan. Of course, I'm a longtime X-Men fan. I had the trading cards in the 90s and the early 90s. I had uh, I was of course watched the animated show on Fox Kids back in the day. So I've been all aboard this X-Men franchise from the beginning. So Hugh Jackman saying that he's going to do one more film and it's going to be the, the, the swan song for his take on Wolverine, the expectations were very high. So seeing the footage for this film and how it was going to go hard R and it was going to commit to the violence and it was going to, it's not going to hold back with the fact that, hey, your main character has knives in his hands. Maybe he's going to cut some things with those, that it's going to lean into the language and everything. And, uh, you know, do a story inspired by Old Man Logan's the comic book run, but as much inspired by classic westerns uh, like Unforgiven and things like that. Uh, Shane, of course, which is referenced in this film very explicitly. It was, a, it was a take on the superhero genre that we haven't seen thus far. And James Mangold did, did The Wolverine in 2013, and that was fine. That was a good movie. That's, again, a 3.5 or so. You can see the review on the site. But Logan was just like leaps and bounds beyond what I've seen Mangle do with this character before. Um, it not only is it a modern Western, it's a superhero movie. It's sort of a sci-fi dystopian movie. Uh, it features incredible performances by Hugh Jackman as Logan and Patrick Stewart as Mr. Charles Xavier, whose voice I just tried to do. Um, I think both of them are awards worthy. They're not getting attention because this is the kind of movie that, that, that it is. And, it's not taken seriously for whatever reason, even though I feel like this is this is a film that in my world would be nominated for Best Picture. It's that good. It feels like a Dark Knight level um, achievement as far as the genre, as far as storytelling in, as a whole. Um, it introduced us to Daphne Keene as Laura slash X-23, who I'm hoping that Marvel slash Disney slash Fox uh, can lock down for subsequent films as this character because her take was really strong. And uh, probably, again, like It and The Florida Project, one of the best. This was a great year for children uh, on film, for child actors, because I thought she did an incredible job here at uh, bringing this character to life. And the film, not only does it have action, but it has moodiness to it. And, it. and if you haven't seen Logan and you have any interest whatsoever in superhero films or the X-Men films in, genre, uh, in general, I would definitely check this out. Chances are, if you're a fan of those things, you've probably already seen Logan. But track down Logan Noir, the black and white version, because it is definitely worth uh, worth experiencing the film in that way, because I think it does bring it to life and sort of accentuate the uh, sort of archetypal design of the, the film in, in keeping with the Western genre and that kind of thing. 
um, in a way then that the full color version doesn't quite doesn't quite nail down. Star Wars: The Last Jedi. You really didn't think I was going to finish this list without putting Star Wars on there, did you? As you know, Star Wars is totally my jam. I'm my favorite film franchise on the planet. And The Last Jedi, I know it's been dividing fans and they're still arguing whether it destroys the franchise forever or it's the best one since Empire. I'm in the latter camp. I think this is the best Star Wars film we've gotten since The Empire Strikes Back. I think it's arguably, possibly even better than A New Hope in my eyes. I've only seen this one twice. I've seen A New Hope a bazillion times. But it's at least top three Star Wars films for me. Coming a year after Rogue One, which was sort of a disappointment for me, uh, and two years after the franchise was reborn, essentially, with The Force Awakens, Ryan Johnson, um, he basically shook this franchise of its shackles, of the sort of the format of what you're expecting from these movies by cutting ties with everything you are expecting from this movie. Um, that, does that mean that the answers to who are raised parents, what is Snoke's deal, where, what, you know, what's going to happen with Luke Skywalker, does that mean that those are our answers people were people are going to be happy with maybe not maybe so it depends if you're going into this movie with a version of it already written in your head then you're going to walk out disappointed no matter what it is and i think uh, the same kind of thing i think happened to me with the dark knight i saw that the first time and i was actually kind of disappointed because i had expectations so high that no film could possibly reach it so i wonder if a lot of fans who are going into last jedi and coming out disappointed are just pissed because they're like, well, there's I lost that I lost that the money in that uh, fan theory pool of uh, Snoke theory and all that other stuff. And um, you know, I hope that people in time come to appreciate this film and what Ryan Johnson has done by reinvigorating Star Wars in a, in a way that can propel it forward for many years to come. Because let's be honest, Disney is Disney and Lucasfilm are going to keep these films coming every year. So it would be nice if they would uh, expand the world a little bit beyond just the Skywalker lineage and, uh, and add some new elements that, um, that can complicate matters a little bit going forward. Of course, this is Carrie Fisher's last screen appearance as, as Leia, and uh, Episode Nine now has to be vastly retooled uh, following her, her unfortunate passing last year, or actually 2016, now it's 2018, i got to remember that, uh, following her, uh, her death. So... Um, we don't know exactly what Star Wars Episode Nine is going to look like. The fact that Episode Eight took so many chances and so many big swings, and um, you know, it wrapped up a lot of things that we were thinking we're going to we're going to carry through this entire new trilogy. It, we have no idea where this franchise is going, and I think that's super exciting. And I love to, and I can't wait to see what J.J. Abrams has in store for us. But with this one as a standalone film, Ryan Johnson created an incredible Star Wars film that that subverts expectations at every turn, has uh, some of the better performances that we've seen in, uh, in these films in a long time. In, in particular, in this one, Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker and Adam Driver as Kylo Ren are, are probably the, the, top of the, the top for me in this film, just because they dig into those characters uh, in ways that we probably um, definitely weren't expecting, but in ways that um, we didn't expect and, um, you know, that... that really uh, surpass my uh, my expectations for where their characters were going to go. So Star Wars The Last Jedi, possibly my favorite movie of the year. It's, it's as far as these 10, I think it's right now uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi and Logan are probably in contention for the top spot. 
with um, Baby Driver and Blade Runner and, and maybe it. I forget how, how I organized this list. I, I had the, the thing ranked at one point before I just decided to go alphabetical with it. But Star Wars The Last Jedi is definitely up there. And uh, it's a good. It's definitely a film I'm going to see at least one more time on the big screen before I get it on Blu-ray and watch it many more times there. So that's uh, the full list of my top 10 films of the year of the ones that I've seen. Uh, if you want to know some of my honorable mentions, go back and listen to part one, the previous episode here. There were a bunch of other films that I saw in 2017 that I saw that I did enjoy, but didn't fit into my top 20 for whatever reason. So in no particular order, I want to list some of those off here just to give them a little shout out. The Disaster Artist, Dunkirk, Power Rangers, Captain Underpants, Atomic Blonde, Split, A Cure for Wellness, Girls Trip, Kingsman the Golden Circle, and The Beguiled. Those were all really strong films that probably would have would have made up my, you know, how many was that? Uh, 21 through 30 or so. Um, but there were, there were a lot of great films this year. I think overall this was a really strong year at the movies. And uh, 2018 has a lot of good stuff ahead. So I'm hoping that I get to see this, say the same thing this time next year. But that's all I have for now. You can rate and review the Crooked Table Podcast on iTunes if you'd be so kind. You can also find us on Stitcher. And we're also on Spotify, so follow us there. Find me, Robert Yanis Jr., on Twitter at Crooked Table. We're also on Facebook and the other social medias. You can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. Uh, we'll be back with another episode, hopefully in the next week. I'm not 100% sure what I want to focus on there. I have a couple ideas, so I won't commit to that now. But um, until then, I've been Rob, and we'll catch you around the table next week. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.